It's good to see y'all tonight. We're in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, you know this chapter, right? This is the love chapter. How many of you, if you can remember, was this in your wedding? Yep. Yeah, it was in ours. I know all of you have at least heard it in a wedding before. It, it's, it's probably in at least 50% of the weddings that are held in churches. Which, by the way, side note, that's getting rarer and rarer. I've been here, it'll be five years in March, and I have yet to do a big church wedding at this church. You know, all my weddings are either the, the ones I like, which are, we'll just show up on Friday and you just marry us and we'll go on. <laughs> I love those. Or it's, you know, meet us at this venue. and that. So I kind of miss the big church wedding, but uh, that's beside the point. 1 Corinthians 13 is known as the love chapter, and yet it's not about marriage. Now, it applies to marriage because love is love, but it's not, there's nothing romantic about 1 Corinthians 13, and Paul was not thinking about husbands and wives when he wrote it. If you were with us, and I think all of you were with us last week, chapter 12 is the context. It's talking about the body of Christ. It's talking about how uh, God has created every person to fit into His body because they all have unique gifts, they all have the Holy Spirit inside of them, and so every member of every church is uniquely important to that church. And the people of Corinth were having trouble with that. They weren't acting that way. And that's why Paul launches into 1 Corinthians 13. Now you've probably heard this before, because all of you have been in church quite a while, but you, you know that there, whereas we have one word for love in English, Greek has three. And that's a real disadvantage to the English language. You use the same word to say, I love you to your spouse and your kids, and you use that same word to say, boy, I sure love Dr. Pepper, or I sure love Christmas, or you know, I sure love your favorite team. And, and that doesn't make any sense. In Greek, they had those three words. They had phileo, which is the word for affection. Brotherly love is one way to translate it, but it means affection. I sure do enjoy being around you. It's that warm feeling you get when you're around someone who you like. Um, then eros, which refers to sexual love or erotic love or romantic love. And then agape. Agape, of course, is the highest form of love because it's the love God has for us. It's love that's unconditional. And it doesn't depend on how you make me feel or what you can do for me. So... Chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians is about agape. In other words, love in this sense has nothing to do with how you feel. You can love someone who you don't really like. Although, I will say, if you love someone long enough, you'll start to like them, but that's a different sermon. It's just, it's a relief because when you read through the scriptures and you see all these times when God commands us to love others, and you look out and you say, boy, there's a lot of people out there that I don't really like all that much. How am I supposed to love them? Well, it does. that is impossible if what God's saying is you need to feel a sense of affection and gratitude for every single person you meet. Nobody can do that. Not, not, not any of us, at least. Because there's always those people who rub you the wrong way. And there are some people who, who are awful to you, who did horrible things to you. You can never feel affection for that person. At least you don't think you can. So it's a relief to find out you don't have to like everybody. Everybody doesn't have to be your cup of tea. And if you uh, go home after spending 30 minutes with someone and say, boy, I hope I never have to see them again, that doesn't make you a terrible person. But it is a challenge too, because now there are no more excuses. If you're called to love all people and love doesn't have anything to do with feelings, 
but instead as an action, it's a choice, it's the decision of the will, then you don't have any excuse. When Jesus says, love your enemies, you, you can't say, well, that's impossible for me to love him because of what he did to me. Jesus would say, so? I loved the people that were nailing the nails into my hands and feet. I didn't like them in that moment, but I loved them. I loved them enough to die for them. I chose to die for them. There are no more excuses for us. There's a third thing, and then we'll get into this verse by verse. Paul, in my opinion, doesn't get the credit he deserves as a writer. Paul wrote some really, really beautiful stuff. He was eloquent, and this is one of his most beautiful chapters. But the Corinthians, the people who first heard this, and remember, if you were in the church in Corinth, the first time you ever encountered this book, this book would have been on a Sunday morning when the pastor or the ruling elder stood up and read it as a letter from Paul to you. And when you heard it for the first time in that church in Corinth, you wouldn't have thought it was beautiful. It would have made you angry. It would have made you feel ashamed. And I'm going to show you why. So he starts with chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So he starts by saying, if I speak in tongues of men and angels, if I'm able to do miracles, if, I, if I'm able to uh, prophesy and speak the words of God, if, I, if I'm able to do all those things but I'm not loving, I'm nothing. Remember, those were big deals in the Corinthian church. A lot of their issue was the people in the church who had the gift of speaking in tongues thought they were superior. And boy, everybody ought to be able to do this. And if you can't do this, you don't have the Spirit of God, and therefore we should be uh, given uh, more privileged positions in the church, and we should be able to, you should appoint us to all the uh, offices that have any authority, because after all, isn't it obvious we're more spiritual? Paul says, you may be gifted in that way, and that's great, God gave it to you, but if you don't love, then that gift is worth nothing. So here's where I say the people of Corinth would have been offended by this chapter because Paul's essentially telling the proudest people of that church, you're nothing. Now, no, people don't take that well. People don't tend to enjoy being told that. And that's what Paul was telling them. Um, so he, he'll, he'll get into a side next week in chapter 14 on whether uh, prophecy or, or the gift of tongues is more important and which is more valuable within the congregation. But for now, he says, neither one of them is as important as love. And if he were writing today, and this, this might help us understand a little better. If he were writing today, imagine a guy who gets into the pulpit of a megachurch and says, if I were to preach sermons that converted thousands of people and built a church that drew in an entire city, I'd still be nothing. If I donated money that sent kids to school and fund research that, that ends diseases, I'm still nothing. If I personally sacrifice my own life to save other people, I'm nothing. Without love, I'm nothing. And you might say, well, but that's hard to wrap our minds around because we, we, we judge Christians by the fruit they produce. And we think of fruit as results, right? We don't think of it in terms of love. We think of fruit in terms of, well, look at all the good she did, or look at, all, look at how many people he's influenced. I, I'm reminded of a story 
Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher from England in 150 years ago, told a story about a farmer long, long ago who uh, grew this huge carrot. And he pulled it out of the ground. He was just amazed at the size of this thing. And he decided, I'm going to show this to the king. So he traveled days and days and made it to the palace and got an appointment with the king and stood before him and he brought in this massive carrot. He said, sire, I've, I've grown the biggest carrot I've ever seen in my life and I want to dedicate it to you because you're such a benevolent king. I, I, just, want to, I just want to give you the best thing I've ever grown. And the king was a wise man. He could tell that this, this simple farmer was just giving a, a, a sincere gift. And so he said, sir, I can see you're a very gifted farmer. I need somebody like you. There's a huge piece of land right next to the palace. Why don't you move your family here and farm that land for me? And the farmer was overjoyed. He didn't expect anything like that. And there was a nobleman in the court who heard this. And he thought, boy, if that's what you get for a carrot. So the next day, he brought in this beautiful stallion. He said, sire, you probably know that I'm the finest horse breeder in all the kingdom. And this is the finest stallion I've ever bred. And because you're such a benevolent king, I want to give this, this stallion to you in your honor. And then he stepped back and waited. And the king, again, was wise enough to see this man's heart. And he said, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I'll add him to the, to the royal stables. And the nobleman stood there for a minute. And he, finally, he said, sire, I don't understand. Yesterday, that farmer came and gave you that silly carrot and you gave him acres and acres of land. And I bring you something worth way more and you don't give me anything. I don't understand. Well, that doesn't make sense. And the king said, well, here's, here's what it comes down to. That farmer gave me his carrot. You gave yourself that horse. And so Spurgeon's point was, if we're not motivated by love, no matter what we do in a religious sense, it's not really for God. It's for ourselves. That was really the problem with the people who opposed Jesus. They weren't in it for God's glory, and they certainly weren't in it for the sake of their neighbors. They were in it for themselves. If you have not love, you are nothing. So then he switches gears. He pivots in verse 4 and says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So here he shows what real agape love looks like. So in the first three verses, he say, he's describing the Corinthians who, who favored and valued gifts and says, you're nothing because you don't have love. Now he says, here's all the things you're not. You're not patient with each other. You're not kind to each other. You envy all the time. You boast constantly. You're arrogant. You're rude. You insist on your own way. You're irritable, resentful. That's quite a list. When you run down through it, it's very easy to find yourself in that list, isn't it? I mean, you're, you hopefully uh, don't miss all of these, but all of us miss some of these, right? This is a hard standard. Let me encourage you with this. Paul doesn't say you should be loving, you should be patient, you should be kind, you should, be, you should not envy or boast. He's saying love is like this. So he's not giving us a checklist of things to try harder to achieve because he knows we can't do it. He's saying this is what love does. If you want to know what love looks like, here's what it is. Love is patient. So I accept you for who you are. I don't expect you to be something that I want you to be. I accept you for who you are. I appreciate who God made you. Love is kind. I care about your needs more than I care about my own. Kindness means I do for you what I wish someone would do for me. It does not envy 
I'm not, I'm not mad at you for having stuff I wish I had. It does not boast. I don't need to be the center of attention. I'm okay with you getting the attention. I don't have to compete with you. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. We all know what those words mean. It does not insist on its own way. My goodness, how would our relationships be better if we didn't insist on our own way? If we didn't insist on winning all the time? It's not irritable. In other words, it takes a long time to make a loving person angry. And once you've made them angry, you know, oh, I've really crossed the line because this person doesn't get angry at anything but righteous causes. It's not resentful, so it doesn't hold a grudge. One other translation says it keeps no record of wrongs. That's one I love to pull out uh, in the family life, right? If someone says, well, remember that time when you? I said, hey, love keeps no record of wrongs. And they're like, oh, stop it, Bible man. Because I know I do that too. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. We're going to talk more about what that means in a moment. So love is not, this is important. Love is not the opposite of hatred. The opposite of hatred would be phileo love. You know, it's, it's that I sure do like being around you, not, oh man, I'm repulsed by you. That's not the opposite of agape love. The agape, opposite of agape love is pride. It's the childishness that's self-centered. And the reason I say childishness, so y'all, most of y'all know my kids. They're great young adults now. Um, and they were great kids. But I can remember one of my worst days as a dad. It was about this time of year, and our church was doing those Operation Christmas Child boxes, and I thought, boy, I'm going to be the best dad ever. I'm going to take both my kids to Walmart, and we're going to fill a couple of those Operation Christmas Child boxes, and we're going to send them off tomorrow. And that's going to, it's going to be an outing with my kids, and it's going to teach them generosity, and it's going to give them a good feeling because they're helping a kid in another nation. Well... It was a miserable night because Will was so little, he couldn't even understand the concept of looking at toys and not getting them. And Kaylee was tired. She'd had a long day. She didn't really want to be there. So both of them were crabby. Both of them were fussy. And I got mad at them the longer we were there. And I, I went from being dad of the year to, I don't even know if I want to have kids anymore. And, and it, it was just a reminder that love takes maturity. Now, now, don't get me wrong, little kids can be incredibly sweet in spurts, right? If you're honest, small children, for the most part, are very, very selfish. They don't know how to think of others. Think about when you were raising your kids, how often you had to get up in the middle of the night for them. I mean, when, you, when you've got a baby, and I know babies are adorable, but when it's your baby, you do a lot of giving and very little receiving of love, right? And, and when you're receiving love from that baby, it's usually kind of accidental. It's just like they just happen to be cute. Um, and it takes maturity. It takes growth to get to the point where a, a child would say, you know, I, I'd rather give something to somebody else than get something for myself. I'm tired because it's been a long day, but this is an important thing to do for someone else, so I'm going to do it. And I was wrong to expect my children to have that kind of maturity at that age. But now, now that they're young adults, you expect them to. And that's the picture of us as believers. So many of us are still childish. We're still prideful. And so we exhibit all these behaviors. It's pride that's the opposite of love. And we need to watch out for it. 
By the way, when he says love never ends, there are some people who will say, but what does that mean? Because we see love end all the time. We see uh, marriages end in divorce. We see friendships break up. We see people move away. We even see people die. And that's a way that love seems to end. So what is he saying when he says love never ends? In Greek, the word that he uses there is the same word you would use of a city that's under siege but refuses to give in, refuses to surrender. So you've got your army, your enemy army camped all around them and, and no one can get in or out and everybody inside is starving, but they're not waving the white flag. They say, we're going to hold out. We're going to wait till our, our comrades come and rescue us, but we are not giving up. And that's the picture of love never ends because what it's saying is you and I may give up on someone. I may have that person who I once was friends with and they've hurt me one too many times and I'm not going to have anything to do with them. I may be that way, but love isn't that way. Love says, I'm going to put up with you. Love says, I'm not going to give up on you. Love says, I'm going to believe in you to the very end. That's what Paul's saying. Love never surrenders. And then finally, verses 8 through uh, the end of the chapter. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the spiritual gifts, I mentioned that there are Christians who believe that gifts like speaking in tongues and prophecy and miracles and healings, that that ceased at the end of the biblical age. So once the canon of Scripture was complete, there was no more miracles, there was no more speaking in tongues, no more prophecy. And that's a significant group of Christians. That one name for them is cessationists because those things ceased in their minds. Where do they get that? I think this is the central text. Paul says, uh, tongues will cease, or what will pass away? Uh, or tongues will cease, prophecies will pass away, knowledge will pass away. So that's where they get that idea. I don't think that's sufficient biblical evidence to say God can never give someone that gift again. In fact, I, I believe God still does miracles. God still gives people the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy. You just have to be careful and make sure that people aren't contradicting Scripture in what they do, and they're glorifying God. I think what Paul's saying when he says prophecy will pass away, tongues will cease, knowledge will pass, I think what he's saying is when Christ returns, because that's the way the chapter ends, by talking about the return of Jesus. When Christ returns, we won't need to speak in tongues anymore because we'll be in his presence. We won't need to prophesy anymore because we'll hear his voice. We won't need miracles because no one will be sick, no one will be hurting. Those things will pass away. But love will last forever. And, and I think part of why he's saying this is, again, He's calling the Corinthians children. And children like spectacular things. Children like shiny toys. They like fireworks. They like, you know, they like bright cartoons. They like splashy, loud, exciting things. And, and, and Paul's saying, yeah, but you need to give up your childish ways. It's time, to, it's time to focus on the things that last forever. Faith, hope, and most of all, love. So stop being a child. Grow up in your faith. And how do you know you've grown up in your faith? Not just because you go to church more than you used to. 
Not just because you cuss less than you used to, not less, not because you avoid certain vices, not because uh, you do certain deeds. You measure it by your love. You go back through that list in verses four through eight. You say, am I more patient than I used to be? Now, I'm, I'm hitting below the belt here. You ask yourself, am I more patient than I was a year ago? Am I less irritable? Am I less likely to hold a grudge? Am I more kind? Would my spouse, would my neighbor, would my boss say, I go over and above the, the call to, to do kind things for others more now than I used to? Am I, am I more of those things now than I used to be? That's the sign you're growing. It's not just because you can do better on a Bible trivia quiz. It's not because you spend more time in prayer. It's you can tell by your love. That's what, that's what it means to give up your childish ways and to grow. And I love verse 12, because verse 12 is a great promise about heaven, because it says right now, we see God like we're looking through a, a dark glass, right? You know, he, he's, the, the modern translations say we see in a mirror dimly, the old King James said, through a glass darkly. Remember, in the ancient world, mirrors weren't as clear as they are today. It was sometimes a shiny piece of metal, right? You couldn't really necessarily see yourself clearly. And that's how we see God now. We see him in part, but someday we'll see him like he sees us. And that's a great promise. That is a beautiful promise. Someday we'll know him the way we are currently known. And this is just my opinion, okay? I don't think we're going to go to heaven and immediately know everything. I think we'll have all of eternity to learn. And that excites me. Because when it's something I am interested in, I enjoy learning. And you do too. You love learning about things you find interesting. And I think what you're going to find is learning who God is will turn out to be the most interesting thing you've ever learned about. Because He's the source of everything good. And so spending eternity knowing Him better, knowing Him better through His creation of the new earth, knowing Him better through all the millions of people you're going to meet over the course of eternity, people who lived thousands of years ago and people who lived after you're gone from this earth. I mean, you're going to get to know so much. You're going to get to know the heart of God so well, but it's going to take eternity. And that's going to be an adventure. Um, that's verse 12. Love is the greatest of all. Again, that is the essence of what it means to be a Christ follower. It's how we judge everything we do. Ultimate decision-making mechanism. Is this an act of love? I'm upset about this. Well, should you be upset? Are you upset for loving reasons? Or are you upset because of self-serving reasons? I want to do this. Well, okay, is that a loving thing to do? Or is that a selfish thing to do? That's the all-time all decision-making instrument right there. Uh, and then finally, I want, to, I want to say this. The only way to grow in love is this, all right? Verse 6 says that love rejoices with the truth. But I learned, in Greek, it's literally love sings along with the truth, which I think is beautiful. So, a little bit of a detour to come back to this point. At my last church, we called a young man to be our youth minister. And before he became a youth minister, he had been an opera singer. Seriously. He was a, a master's student at Rice in voice. He was on a full scholarship. I don't think his mom was particularly happy with us for convincing him to leave that and go into youth ministry because opera singers make a lot of money and he was very, very talented. 
Every spring, he would do a concert at our church to raise money for the kids, and he'd raise enough money that he could send a lot of kids to camp. He'd get up and he'd sing opera songs and show tunes and hymns and pop music, and people would come and donate tons of money because he was just so gifted. When we were at youth camps, if there was a kid that didn't want to wake up, he would go open their door and stand at the, at the entrance to the door and just sing opera to them. And it would blow out the windows of the whole building. People from other churches would come and go, what's going on? I mean, he just had this powerful voice. So I'd say all that to say this. On Sundays when I happen to be sitting in front of him during the song portion of the service, I really sang well. Because it felt like, I couldn't hear myself at that point. His voice was so powerful it felt like his voice was coming straight out of me. And, and it just, it felt, it's sort of like, I don't know if you ever do this, but if you turn up the music in your car and you're singing along with it, you can't hear yourself anymore. Well, you sure sound good then. And that's what it was like for me. I was singing along with him. Now, I, in con on contrast, um, this, is, this is my skill as a singer. At that same church, one time our, our music minister was on sabbatical and we had a funeral and they wanted a couple of congregational hymns. They wanted someone to lead congregational hymns. And, and I couldn't find anybody to lead them. And I said, well, I can do that. I mean, I, I knew all the songs. And so I got up and I led a couple of hymns. And afterwards, one of our members, one of my friends, one of my true friends came up to me and said, well, you tried. <laughs> so that, that's how I sing compared to how he sings. And that's a picture of Jesus loves. Jesus is love. He is perfect love. We're not. But love sings along with the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what we do if we want to grow in love is not try really hard because we can't do it. What we do instead is we come to Jesus and we say, Lord, teach me to love. We spend time with him. We say, Lord, help me to love this person with your love. And then we make that decision. We make that act of the will. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be kind to this person today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, pray to the Lord to give me grace so I don't lose my patience with this person today. I'm going to surrender the resentment I have towards this person today. And the more we do that, the more it becomes habit. And so, sort of like if I were to have sat every Sunday and sang in front of him, in front of our youth minister, over time, I would learn to sing. I'd never be as good as him because God didn't give me those kind of pipes, but I'd learn to sing on key. And as we sing along with Jesus, if we sing along with the truth, over time, we start to learn how to sing for ourselves. We learn how to sing the truth, the, the loving truth of God. So that is how we grow in love, and that is what 1 Corinthians 13 is all about. Thank y'all for being here. I'm going to close this in prayer, and uh, I'll remember all the folks in our church that are struggling right now, and a lot of positive COVID tests in our community. So keep that in your prayers. Obviously, our leaders and everything else going on in our in our nation right now. Let's pray. Almighty God, we lift up before you uh, this church, this congregation. Thank you for loving each person, everybody who you created. And thank you, Lord, for creating this church as a way for us to bind together and love one another and love our community. I pray, Lord, that you would make us a church that nourishes true love, 
that knows the difference between emotion and action and takes those loving actions habitually each and every day, more and more learning to love like you do. Lord, we pray for our community. We pray for protection for those, O oh Lord, who are sick right now. We pray for healing. Heavenly Father, for those who are struggling, I pray that you would provide for them. Lord, I pray that for a swift end to this pandemic and for guidance for our leaders locally and nationally to make good decisions. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Amen.